This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Coming up now, as you remember, uh, just prior to uh, the weekend, uh, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, was in town chatting with Mayor Fred Eisenberger. We're going to talk about that and, of course, uh, LRT and all things such. Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us right now. Mayor, City of Hamilton, he's on the line now. Hello, Fred. How are you today? Just great, Scott. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate that. We know that you're a busy guy and such. Uh, first of all, tell us about the meeting with the Prime Minister. How did that go? Uh, you know, it was wonderful to meet the uh, Prime Minister right in Hamilton. It's been a long time since we've had a Prime Minister come right to City Hall and meet with the Mayor, so I was delighted to uh, to have the opportunity, and I want to thank uh, Count, or MP Bertina and Philomena Tassi for uh, and, and you know, they, they said they had a hunger strike on to uh, make sure that Prime Minister would come to Hamilton uh, sometime soon. So the hunger strike is over. And uh, you know what? He, he's such an easy guy to like and know and work with. I've met him uh, a number of times now, and uh, he's certainly uh, beyond friendly and very focused. So, you know, one of the hallmark uh, issues that uh, mayors across the country have been asking for and, and, and pining for is uh, an infrastructure program in partnership with municipalities. Uh, that um, that uh, is so important in terms of the future of the country. And, uh, you know, this Prime Minister uh, fully agrees that uh, as cities go, uh, so goes the country. If cities are doing well, the country is going to do well. And, uh, and hence we see, uh, you know, major uh, funding initiatives happening that uh, are, is going to be worked on in municipalities on our infrastructure deficit and our transit deficits that uh, I think is going to be not only good for employment, but good for the long-term health and well-being of our major cities. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, certainly a bridge builder, certainly a uh, the type of leader that brings sides together and has has been certainly uh, very vocal and with his actions going out and, and visiting various parts of the country, which, of course, we haven't seen in the past. How, how from a leadership standpoint at the municipal level, how does that bode with leaders, knowing that the prime minister will stop and chat with you? Well, it's, it's incredibly important. Uh, you know, it's something that we were hoping the federal government would buy into. And I, I do recall that uh, back in the day, Prime Minister Paul Martin was really one of the first to talk about uh, a more direct relationship with uh, cities uh, across the country, largely because of the infrastructure deficits that we see and, uh, and the benefit that, that could accrue to the country as a whole if uh, we were to, able to partner between the municipality, the federal government, and, and the provincial government in a more fulsome way. So the fact that he's actually visiting with uh, municipal leaders, uh, you know, had a, had a brief visit with our council, I, I think uh, is, is a testament and a statement about the kind of relationship that uh, he believes is going to be important for the future of our country. And that is, you know, in, in some, some respects, very directly with municipalities, but also including our provincial partners that, uh, you know, this, this needs to be a three-government approach uh, to, uh, to dealing with some of our issues. And uh, certainly we're seeing... Seeing that uh, happening on the ground and uh, for real in terms of their funding commitments, and uh, I expect that before too long, a lot of this funding is going to roll out into cities like ours. So we just uh, sent out an agreement to uh, to partner with the federal government on a $65 million uh, transit uh, funding envelope that's going to improve our, our local public transit, our existing transit, and uh, reliability. And I think that's a, the beginning of, I think, a number of partnerships that uh, is going to help us get on top of our infrastructure. Uh, since we're talking about uh, transit, let's bring up LRT. Um, Mayor, I'm getting emails from listeners that said that you had promised a, a citizens panel on all of this, that they still don't feel that they have been asked whether they want an LRT or not. How do you respond to that? Well, look, I mean, I did set up a citizens panel uh, <clears throat> before the uh, the provincial government actually announced the uh, the funding, and uh, they, they were busy doing their work. They did come to a conclusion that uh, LRT was the best investment for the city of Hamilton going forward from a not only a transportation perspective, but from, from an economic development uh, uptake perspective. So that work was done, and, uh, you know, people can track back to uh, their recommendations, which really set out some goals in terms of how we achieve LRT. Uh, and uh, one of them was, uh, you know, direct communications, uh, making sure that we look after the uh, businesses that uh, that may or may not be impacted, uh, you know, into the future in terms of how, how it's all developed. I mean, a whole series of uh, seven recommendations that talk about uh, how to get the best value out of this uh, significant billion-dollar investment. 
So uh, we've run a number of elections on it. I was not shy about saying uh, during this last election that uh, I was fully supportive of LRT, uh, as was, uh, you know, the uh, the second place uh, winner, uh, Brian McCaddy. And uh, there was an anti-candidate, if you recall, that uh, that thought we should be doing other things. That has now, in fact, and that was Brad Clark, who, uh, you know, popped into the office the other day and suggested that uh, he was fully on board now, that uh, we have the funding, uh, only a fool would stop stop that funding from going forward, and uh, that we need to marshal on and get this thing done. So uh, I think all the, uh, all the political alignment is there. Every, virtually every... Uh, MP and MPP, save and except Mr. Hudak and uh, Mr. Bertina, have signed on to uh, this proposal. Uh, you know to, that that's the right thing to do for the city of Hamilton, both provincially and federally. <clears throat> so we have, I um, mean, you know, all the stars have lined up, and uh, we are moving towards implementation. And you know, save and accept somebody moving, a, you know, moving something that says stop. Uh, we're going to keep going and fulfill this, uh, you know, very strategic and important investment for our city. Uh, as you know, uh, a couple of councillors looking for a referendum on this and then really realized after uh, legalities uh, research that two-thirds of council was needed for in order for this to happen, etc. Uh, and as a result, no referendum. Why, why would this not have been discussed prior to even starting a referendum campaign? Any thoughts on that? Which the, the, the well, why you wouldn't look at why wouldn't you you wouldn't look at the legal angles before some on council decided to actually uh, you know start a campaign on a referendum? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't uh, wasn't my idea. It was uh, kind of thrown out there uh, uh, on a given uh, you know day through a newspaper article. So uh, you know we followed up uh, immediately to make sure that we uh, we we understand the voting implications and what this may mean for. For uh, the uh, the implementation process that we're currently under way on, and the agreement that we've already signed with the province of Ontario, so I, I can't answer that question for you. But uh, one would think that uh, you, one would look at the implications before one leaps into a referendum question. Having said that, you know it's been ten years. This has been ten years in the making. I mean, there are there aren't too many elements of this that are unknown. Um, it, it is really unfair. To uh, put this into a referendum category, because there isn't a single sentence that you could put together that would provide people enough information and enough background, like members of council have had for the past ten years, to, to help them make an informed decision. So, uh, you know, that's what we uh, elect people to do. Uh, we elect members of council and a mayor to uh, to look in the best interest of the com- community as a whole and make decisions that uh, are forward-looking and positive and are going to have benefit not only from an employment perspective but from a transportation perspective as well as an economic uplift perspective and all of those elements are there on this particular project that that was the foundation of choosing LRT in the first place so uh, that hasn't changed and uh, you know a referendum question won't change those parameters either and uh, it's really kind of patently unfair to throw that out there now after 10 years of review and research and about 60 different votes uh, that most members of council have all supported up until the announcement uh, to to get this project, uh, you know, up up and going. So uh, I think it's a little late in the game, and I think it's a little unfair to suggest. And uh, and uh, obviously, by virtue of the legal advice, it's uh, very difficult to uh, to get into place now at this late date. Uh, last week, Councillor Whitehead wrote a letter to uh, the provincial government asking for clarity on the one billion dollars and how it to be spent. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, we, we've had that clarity for quite some time. <clears throat> you know, the uh, the uh, uh, member of parliament, uh, member of provincial parliament, Ted McMeekin, who's the parliamentary assistant to the premier. Their offices are right next door to one another. Speaking on behalf of the premier, has cleared it up a number of times. This is a billion-dollar provincial investment, uh, design, build, own, operate LRT line for the city of Hamilton. This is not a billion dollars for some other project that we might want to think up. Uh, we asked for this billion-dollar LRT investment. We got it 100% funded, unlike other communities like uh, Kitchener-Waterloo or Ottawa or Toronto that haven't had 100% funding. And uh, and if there's an overrun in, in the cost, uh, that, that is solely borne by the province of Ontario through Metrolink. So, uh, you know, those answers have been there for quite some time. I'm not sure why we keep asking the same questions over and over again and then expecting a different answer. Uh, I think uh, someone said that that was the definition of insanity. 
uh, I don't think anyone's insane here, but I, I think we do understand that uh, these are these are already resolved issues, don't need to be revisited again. It's been confirmed on a number of different occasions, and uh, it's clear uh, this is a, a billion LRT funding. If we choose not to go down this road uh, for for some reason or another, we we do what Brampton's now doing, which is you start all over again and you reapply for funding and you reapply for a project and. Right now, I think Brantford believes they're set back about 10 years. Uh, where does this letter leave the discussion? Uh, will, th- will they provide more clarity? Do they need to do that? Uh, does having a letter like this actually provide less clarity as far as they're sta- uh, concerned? I-, I think it confuses the public and uh, leads them to believe that these are, these are questions that haven't been answered. They have been. And, uh, you know, if I were the, uh, the province of Ontario, I think I would just reiterate uh, verbally, uh, as they have done in the past, exactly the uh, message that I just delivered to you in terms of their answers, and uh, leave it at that. Uh, Do you think this is the last we've heard of this, Mayor? Do you think it is now just full steam ahead and, of course, uh, doing the consultation processes as need be and we move forward? Or do you think that, you know, until a shovel is in the ground and this thing is going down, that you're going to continue to see this sort of thing? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, these are these are you know transformative projects that are complicated and challenging and uh, and do change the dynamic of the city. There's no question about that. Uh, I believe, firmly believe, as most uh, uh, members of council do, that this is transformative in a positive way, and that it will lead to uh, you know significant benefits in terms of economic uplift and renewal that uh, far outweigh the uh, the upset, uh, you know, over that the short period of time that it takes to get it developed. So, but it's, uh, as I said many times, this is going to be a roller coaster. Uh, all of the communities that have gone through this, uh, it's never an easy process. Uh, there'll be issues that come up that will have to be overcome. Uh, we will never have all of the information. We didn't have all of the information when we launched into the expressway development. Uh, right now, we don't have all the information as we launch into a $80 million waterfront redevelopment. And so uh, you, you, you base your decisions on the best information you have at this moment in time. Determine if it's good over, over time for the, the, the well-being of our city, and you move forward. I suspect there'll be other hurdles along the way, and we'll deal with them as they come up. Well said. Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with the City of Hamilton on LRT and, of course, his meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau. Mayor, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Michael Rafferty, the man who, uh, the, the man convicted of killing eight-year-old Tory Stafford, is asking Ontario's top court for a new trial. To talk more about all of this, uh, Alex Pearson is with us, who covered the Tory Stafford case and is with us now. Hello, Alex. How are you today? Good, thank you. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. You know, I think about how many times we talked during the Tim Bosma trial, and uh, we weren't chatting during the, the Tory Stafford trial, but I certainly do remember that. Uh, does this not take a toll on you, sitting through these trials and, and, and doing this type of work? And, of course, we don't mean to diminish the victims or anything of that nature, but, boy, these are, are pretty tough to endure, are they not? Well, they, the, both of the proceedings for Tory staff were very heady, as you'll recall. Uh, McClintock pleaded out, so she pleaded to first-degree murder. So she read out an agreed statement of facts, which lasted about three hours. And I remember that day, and I think about that day, and there is not one day since that day that I have not thought about what happened to Tory Stafford. Because when it comes to children murders, they're in a category all on their own. And I covered uh, Michael Rafferty's proceedings as well. That itself was a jury trial in London. So it was a little bit more methodical, more slow-paced. The information came out um, in a slower fashion. So it it felt much different. It was much more procedural, whereas uh, Terry Lynn McClintock, you, you got, according to her, every gruesome detail about what happened to Tory Stafford. And it was conversation um, between her and Michael Rafferty where um, there were moments when you knew Tory Stafford could have been released, could have been given her life. And it was McClintock uh, who did not um, give her that chance. You know, Tory Stafford, and, and these are the kind of haunting memories for me, Tory looked at Terry Lynn McClintock as almost a mother figure, as in a, a female. She trusted her mm-hmm. to protect her 
against Mr. McClintock and kept saying, please, 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 I'll do anything. Just let me go. Just I will I will run away. And there were a couple of opportunities where McClintock could have, in fact, released that child and, and reassured Tory that she wouldn't let anything happen to her. And of course, I'll spare you the details. But that is not what happened. And, and so those are the kind of haunting details we got in the McClintock case that we didn't necessarily hear in the Rafferty proceedings. But, but they do stay with you for sure. So you can only imagine what Tory's family, who are, again, in Toronto, at an appeal court in downtown Toronto, listening to this again, what they go through. Mm, man. Uh, are you surprised that that we're going through this process? Or, you know, anything there, or is this just all part of the process? Well, I'm disgusted that it's four years later. I'm not surprised ever when I hear an appeal. This is very routine. Of course, Smitch and uh, Millard are both going through the appeal process, but that happens pretty quickly. What's unique in this situation is that it has taken four years to get this thing before a court. So for her family... For the Stafford family, um, this is something that then hangs over their head day in, day out, and they don't truly get the peace mm. and the recovery and the healing that they need. It's just constantly, every time they seem to get on with their life, they're pulled back in. Um, so does it surprise me? Sadly, no. It disgusts me, yes, but this is the system we seem to accept in this country. Will they have to read, uh, relive those gruesome details again? Um, well, those were two different proceedings. These two were not tried together. So the McClintock hearing, which again was a plea deal, um, was different in the sense that we got so much detail. Rafferty, on the other hand, denied his involvement. He placed it, of course, on her. And that's pretty much which is at the, the core of this appeal, is that he's saying she's not believable. It, in fact, was her, and the jury um, was not properly instructed to to remember that she was not a reliable witness um, because, you know, she herself was a drug addict. uh, So he tried to pass it on her. At no time did he ever apologize, show remorse, show regret, whereas during her deal, she cried. Uh, she was a mess. She had to keep a bucket beside her and kept having to leave the court. Um, she claimed she was sorry. She claimed to feel regret. She claimed uh, to feel remorse. They were very, very different, whereas he is, again, I didn't do it. It was her. I was just there uh, laying it at her feet. But it, it doesn't seem to be something the, the three judges are really buying because uh, there, there's been quite a bit of, of pushback, as I understand, from those in the court. Um, of of what they're hearing and what what is being asked of them. So I, I in my gut I don't think this is going to go ahead. I hope it doesn't go ahead. Uh, but stranger things have happened. Uh, at the end, isn't it? He said, she said. I mean, they're saying she wasn't a credible witness. Does that make much of a difference that that charge was left out? If if that was the case. Um, you know, that would be up to the, the trial judge at the time. Um, you know, are either of them believable? Are either of them mm-hmm. credible? What they did to that child um, is something that I cannot put into words. It is so beyond imagination what that child endured at the hands, and I say this, mm-hmm. at the hands of both of those people. Both of those monsters could have at any time stopped what they were doing. This was something that was thought out, planned. Remember, they went to the school, they had a story, mm-hmm. they lured her from that school. So there was thought put into this. So I think to the, the everyday person, you know, how can he just turn around then and say, well, I, I was just there. Well, no, you were in that car. You both came up with a story. You lured that child. You stopped at the Tim Hortons. You stopped at the hardware. So you could have stopped this. And at no time did Michael Rafferty do the right thing and say, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. And at no time when Terry Lynn McClintock was left alone in that vehicle with Tori Stafford stuffed in the back of that car, at no time did she do the right thing and get that child away, regardless of how often and how many times Tori begged for Terry's help. That child didn't stand a chance with either of those two people. So as far as I'm concerned, this thing should be tossed out. It should, never should have gotten uh, into that appeal court. But mm. but there will be many a lawyer who disagree with me, but that's just, you know, yeah. uh, my take on it. Uh, how long does this whole process take? Do we know? 
It should be pretty quick. I mean, it's a day of hearings. Remember, this is three judges. They'll sit, they'll ask questions, they'll hear this. They may reserve judgment for another day. But I I think that this uh, will kind of come to fruition fairly quickly. Again, you've got Rodney, you know, Tory's father. You've got, the, you know, the family of Tory there. Um, and it's hell for them. It is really, really hard for them um, to have to go through this. And I think that the judges are mindful of that. And as much as the victims in these cases, as we've learned, are not at the forefront and it's not about them, I think people are still mindful in the, in the judicial system of that, that they don't want to prolong this. But I think this one will move fairly quickly. Um, if, in fact, for some reason it does... Uh there is a new trial and and they're they're granted this does it have to be a repeat of the old or can they say we've already covered this in the old and just uh, specifically deal with whatever the objection or the issues were with the first trial no i imagine they would have uh, a totally new trial which again after this amount of time would be extraordinarily difficult reliving witness testimony getting that witness testimony having terry lynn mcclintock then come in of course her agreed statement of facts is in uh in in the court so they would then have to drudge up all that i again i think it's far-fetched to to overturn this thing and, and get a new trial but um it would be astonishing uh, to get this before again, uh, another courtroom, whether it be judge alone or or jury, it'd be very difficult to get a jury who who has not heard this case and isn't familiar with the details. So there are a lot of challenges moving ahead if this thing goes ahead. But I, I'm I'm thinking that uh, justice will hopefully prevail in this. Obviously, we know with the uh, the Tim Bosma case that uh, a lot was done to make sure. Uh, mm-hmm. preserve evidence and stuff and, and make sure that this was foolproof and, mm-hmm. and to get this to, to court and, and to yep. get a conviction. Uh, do you feel the same sort of um, uh, thoroughness was, was given to this trial? Do you see any loose ends here that could cause problems? Yeah, no, look, I, at many times during the uh, Tim Bosma trial, I actually felt the judge was more worried about the charge than some of the proceedings. And I, I mean, he was really, really uh, careful uh, about that charge. I think he started writing that charge in his mind from day one and fully knowing that the media across the country was watching that case. So he was very, very careful. And I think a lot of times today, judges are so mindful of the charge to the jury and the concern about getting an appeal. There is no judge that wants a case overturned on their watch. So they're very, very careful with this kind of thing. And the same kind of attention would have been given. You know, at the time, this trial was in London. It didn't get, it got a lot of attention, but it was a shorter trial. It didn't last as long um, as Bosma. Um, and, and it was a little bit more efficient in just kind of getting through it. But yeah, the judge was very, very careful and very mindful um, during the charge uh, to make sure that this, uh, that the jury at the time uh, was, was equipped to get uh, a, a conviction and or an acquittal. Um, so I think, I think, and given the, some of the questioning, the line of questioning from the three appellate judges at Osgood, um, it doesn't sound like they're really buying what's being put in front of them. Because, of course, the onus is on that defense lawyer to prove that the judge didn't do the proper job and that that jury was, you know, led down a different route. Um, so, you know, I, I think the, the charge is one of those things that judges are always mindful of. Uh, and obviously, um, how do you balance between being fair to somebody? Uh, you know, we were listening to cli- a clip of from Tory uh, Stafford's father, Robbie, and yeah. and and basically said, you know, he's not happy with it, but he said he understands the appeal process, and it's something that uh, that um, you know he he has to go through, and that um, uh, you know if he was in his position, he would probably do the same thing. That being said, how do they balance whether, you know, is this a waste of time? Is it worth the money and the cost and whatever and putting the family through all this versus giving somebody their day in court? No, the, the, the court system in this country and, and, uh, and, the, and the process itself is not about the victims. It's not about Tory Stafford. It's not about Tim Bosma. It is about preserving the rights of the accused to a fair process. And so that's how our system is designed. And you know, like it or lump it, this this is what I think is the best system to have 
It's, you know, so all your I's are dotted and T's are crossed. And I say that not to diminish uh, Tory Stafford or Tim Bosma or the victims, you know, families. I don't because I've seen so many times, Scott, what these people go through. Their lives essentially become about permanently fighting for the justice of their loved one. And, and it's not fair. But that is the system we have, and we, we ought to preserve it. Um, the good news is we have enough checks and balances in our system to make sure guys like Michael Rafferty uh, and, and Terry Lynn McClintock don't see the light of day. And I, I think that that is going to remain the case in this particular case. So, um, look, the system's not designed to make sure Tory Stafford or her family um, get their day in court. This is very much about Michael Rafferty and to make sure that, uh, you know, his rights were protected um, and, and that he got, you know, the conviction that he deserved. And I think that these appellate judges, they're, they're very careful. I mean, we just don't hear often in this country um, of these kinds of things uh, happening. We don't really hear often of cases being overturned and coming back. That's the good news. So they're, they're very careful about this. Uh, last week, one of the jurors in this uh, case, uh, looking for compensation, looking for yeah. help, uh, suffering from PTSD. Uh, are you mm-hmm. surprised, you know, considering what was heard during this case? Um, again, this is the Michael Rafferty case. So I, I'm hearing uh, my, my experience between he and Terry and Melinda McClintock was really, really different. Yeah. Um, because, of course, she herself explained moment to moment what happened, whereas in his case, Michael Rafferty's case, it was kind of a lawyer, again, the Crown, taking us through um, the facts. I'm not surprised any juror member feels the effects after a trial. Um, Do I think they deserve compensation? Absolutely not, because we would then be open to, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people then making a claim. Do I believe that jurors should have some kind of court service available to them, maybe some kind of um, counseling? Absolutely. But, I, I mean, when you go into jury selection, you at that time know what you're going into. So let's take the Tim Bosma case. People knew the case. Anyone picked for that jury knew that they were going to be hearing horrifying details. So they do prep, they do prepare. They're very careful about making sure that you are prepared, that you know you're going to hear things. So it should come as nobody, it should come to the surprise of nobody on a jury that in a murder trial you're going to hear horrible and heinous things. That but it's not like something you it's not like something you have a choice of here, Alex. I mean, you get picked well, to do it. You're doing your duty. I mean, you know, can I say if I'm going for jury duty, you know, I'm worried I'm going to get uh, post traumatic stress disorder because I don't want to hear how a little girl was killed. Well, if you said that, you wouldn't be selected for that jury. I mean, if you openly said, um, you know, I, I can't sit on this because I can't hear that. There's yeah. no lawyer in his right mind that would pick you for that jury. Um, people are prepared for this. Like I said, do I believe counseling could be made available? Absolutely. But if we get into, um, you know, rewarding people with monetary, um, you know, rewards for what they went through, good God. I mean, what about the court staff? What about the police that stand in that courtroom? What about all the reporters? I mean, I'm not a unique individual. No one trained me to go in and listen to Holly Jones's murder, Tory Stafford's murder, Randall Dooley. These are things that became, uh, it was like a club to the head when I was hearing these details for the first time. I didn't know I was ever going to hear details like that as a reporter. Um, but these are things that you have to get the skills to be able to deal with. I deal with it by taking it home and over time, you know, you deal with it. But that doesn't make me any less human than, let's say, a juror on one of these murder trials. Uh, I'm no stronger. I'm no weaker. Uh, I've just learned to deal with it. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, that's just how, how people have to, to understand, you know, get counseling, go to therapy. These things are available. But if we change a system that people will be rewarded for PTSD, that's, that's not a road we should be going down. And uh, I know that sounds cold, but... But you're talking about a monetary a monetary settlement of some sort. Should it be a default position where, you know, if you're going through a case like this or like mm-hmm. the ones that you're talking about, that counseling should be made available? I think now it's sort of up to the judge because now yeah. I guess this person's trying to, um, you know, to, to get that uh, help that they need. Um, you know, at the end of the day, is it up to the judge or, or the... Uh, 
the uh, lawyers to tell the, the potential juror that this could be horrific. So how are you going to? Well, they do tell that though. When when they when they split you into panels and you go in and you're 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 just a number at that time and you're sitting like you don't generally know when you get called for jury duty what case you're going in. Right. So it's like a big room and there'll be hundreds of people sitting in that room. They'll call you forward and if your number's picked, they'll say okay. You're being selected uh, as a potential juror for the Tim Bosma case. Then when you get into the room, you're asked a series of questions. What do you know about this case? Right. What do you know about the accused? Have you read media reports? And, and from the answers you give as a juror, yeah. it's then deemed, you know, could you be fair? Could you be objective? Um, you know, you will hear terrible details. You know, these are things. But if someone actually stood up on a jury in that interview process and said, oh, gosh, I, I can't do that. I, I don't want to hear it. They're not going to pick you. They're just not going to pick you. Um, so, so they know uh, that so, you'd already be a problem. So it. if I got called to jury duty and, you know, I was uh, being screened to appear as a juror on one of these cases and yeah. I and I stood up and I said, you know what? I got young kids. I can't handle watching this or going through it. It'll uh, it'll eat me up. That would get me out of the jury duty. I can't say it would get you out necessarily because then everybody would have an excuse as to why they can't be on a jury. And I, I am one who's in a, I'm very, very pro this kind of system mm-hmm. um, that you really, it's our civic duty to, 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 like I'm, I'm behind that, but, I'm behind that hundred percent, Alex, but sure, I don't but, know, but I don't know if I could do it, what you do, what you do. I don't know if I could go through that. I'd be a mess. Right. But, but it, it would be the discretion of the judge and, and, and the trial judges mm-hmm. Uh, and the trial lawyers, rather, to, to, to determine that, you know, is Scott going to be someone who is going to cause us problems through this trial? Is he going to be calling in sick? That's what they have to weigh. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly when you get to higher profile proceedings like Tory Stafford, like Tim Bosma, they certainly weigh those kinds of things. And that's why when we had Tim Bosma, there were a couple of extra jurors called. Um, because it was going to be a long trial, it was going to be a hard trial, very high profile, and the judge wanted to make sure that they had the numbers when it came time to, uh, you know, getting into that deliberation room, that they had 12 strong jurors that could make the decision. So, look, it is no secret when you get called for something like that. Um, they're very, very careful to make sure that you know what you go, you're going to go through is going to be very difficult. Now, I am We're just not getting the breaking... Way. Hang on a yep. sec, Alex. Yep. We're just getting yep. the breaking news right now that yep. the Rafferty appeal has been dismissed. Yes. So Good there news. you go. So. And I'm very, very, very pleased about this, and I'm not surprised as uh, I felt that the questioning of the appellant judges was, was leaning in that direction, but uh, I'm thankful for that family um, that they don't have to go through this process again. He is a piece of garbage, she is a piece of garbage, and the two of them should never be heard from again, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, clearly, uh, do you think we will look at these things differently? Do you think this case, as far as uh, you know, the public perception of this case, I mean, there would have been outrage, would there not, if there was a new trial? Yes, there would have been, and there should have been. Um, you know, the details of what happened to that child uh, have never, unless you go and read um, Terry LeMcClintock's uh testimony, her agreed statement of facts, you don't truly get a sense of what happened that day, if, of course, you believe her. Um, And that's good, because most people don't want to hear those details, and the media really couldn't put it all out there. It was just that horrifying. Um, But if, if we had a series of cases like this constantly being overturned, they'd have to look into it. They'd have yeah. to. But I, I think this is proof, further proof, that we have a very, very good system, that it, it weighs the checks and balances. But every once in a while you get a case like this um, that four years later pops up and then goes away. So I hope for the, for the family, for Tara, you know, Tori's mom, Rodney, her dad, that they finally get some peace. But further proof, Scott... That once the conviction comes in, people like the Bosmas, people like the, the Staffords, their lives don't yeah. just go back to normal. Yeah. This Good is point. their life. Alex Pearson has been with us, of course, uh, covered the trial, uh, the Tory Taff, uh, the Tory, Stra- uh, Tory Stafford murder trial, and of course the Tim Bosman murder trial for CHML. And uh, it has just been announced that uh, his uh, request for a new trial has been dismissed. Alex, thanks for the time and expertise as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure, sir. Cheers. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
We are hearing uh, chatter that uh, advanced polls are quite strong and that uh, people do seem to be getting out to vote. What does that mean as we head into the last uh, couple of weeks of this election campaign? Blaine Haggard is with us, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science, Brock University. He is with us now. Hello, Blaine. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. I appreciate this. I understand you're a political scientist, but do you ever watch the sketches on Saturday Night Live? I did, yes. I, I watched the, uh, the debate ones have been fantastic. <laughs> it is amazing uh, how they've nailed this. That being said, uh, do you buy Donald Trump's uh, uh, excuse that this is all uh, hampering his, uh, his election campaign? The, uh, the, the uh, Saturday Night Live, you mean? That and, of course, just the media in general. Oh, uh, no, he's doing that pretty much himself. I mean, I think it was pretty much, wasn't it Al Baldwin's line in, in, the, uh, in the sketch this past Saturday that basically the media is against them because they're reporting exactly what he's saying? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was the amazing thing about the, the sketch was that um, there was very, very little, exact, by, the, by the time they did their third campaign sketch, or uh, debate sketch, they were basically just pretty much transcribing what actually happened. That's a very valid point. There was less comedy and more three and more reality with the final one, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah very, but still amusing. Very true. All right, uh, we're hearing about strong numbers in advance polls. What does that mean? Uh, basically, it means that there's a lot of interest in the election, um, and most of it seems to be coming from the Democratic side. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of confirming what we would kind of suspect is that a lot of people are being a lot of attention to this uh, to the presidential election, and they want to make sure they get their, their uh, ballot heard. Uh, there's been sort of conflicting report all along this campaign that whether there would be strong turnout or not. Some just saying, you know what, this is uh, unbelievable. I'm just, I'm not even participating this time. Others, the actions motivating them to get up and and to get out and vote. Uh, how do you think this one will go? Um, I th- from well, the early indications are that on the Democratic side, you're seeing pretty strong turnout in a lot of states. In in a couple of states, like say Ohio, um, the early voting has been kind of behind what it was uh, four years ago. But on the Democratic side, it seems to be pretty strong. Probably, if I had to guess, probably motivated um, a little bit by fear um, of Donald Trump because he's a, he's basically said that he's done, he's going to do some terrible things to a lot of people. And on the on the Republican side. Uh, there was a poll that came out this past uh, this past weekend that, sh- that that suggests that Republicans themselves are getting uh, very kind of discouraged and are now going to be less likely to vote um, than they were even say uh, a month ago. At what point do Clinton supporters, uh, as loyal as they are, uh, at what point do they start to get angry at um, at Trump for for blowing this opportunity? I mean, he was afforded an opportunity that only the rich and famous get, and he was supposed to be the anti-establishment candidate, and, and basically blew it because of his lack of preparedness. At what point do they say, "Hey"? You screwed this up, as opposed to him just letting getting away with blaming everyone else for it. Yeah, I mean, that's what's going to be really, really interesting to watch if the election does seem to go like the way it's, it seems to be going, with uh, Hillary winning on uh, in, uh, in November. Uh, because that's one thing, you'll have, you have basically two groups. You have the, two, the first group, like you say, people who are going to be like, you know, we wanted to win this, and you lost it, you're a loser. And then you're going to also have the true believers. So... What I'll be looking for is what the non-Trump, what the non-Donald Trump candidates say uh, on on the Wednesday after the election. If they they if they're fearful of of his base, then they'll you know kind of double down on on, uh, on Trump. If not, they've got a great chance to say, hey, he's a loser. Let's cut bait. Even if you know he screwed us over, let's go do something else. Uh, talk about him complaining about everything being rigged and now finally the election system itself being rigged. Uh, at what point do, um, at what point does he have to somehow accept responsibility for his own actions or will he? Uh, I don't know. He's, uh, you know, for, for everybody, if we don't want to acknowledge things, we can always find a reason to, to blame someone else or to go into denial about something. So at the end of the day, the important question is not whether or not Donald Trump will accept it. He's not a guy that says sorry a lot, if at all, but what other people do, whether or not they just continue to pay attention to him, even if he says that, you know, I'm not going to accept this or I accept this, but only because it's rigged and, you know, come and buy my, uh, you know, come and watch my new TV show. 
Has Hillary gotten a free ride this campaign uh, because his seems to be so self-absorbed? We certainly do spend a lot of time talking about Donald Trump and not a lot of talking about Hillary Clinton, don't we? Yeah. Um, I think that there's, I think about this in two ways. I mean, first of all, uh, the case for Hillary Clinton, I mean, quite honestly, if you vote for, you could justify your vote for Hillary Clinton just to keep Donald Trump out of the White House because he is as pretty much every uh, serious newspaper and, and pundit has, and even serious Republicans point out he has absolutely no qualifications for the job. So on that sense, that you know, that it, it almost doesn't matter what Hillary Clinton has done because obviously she's not as bad as Donald Trump. But on the other side, too, she has also gotten most of her coverage has, or, or a very, very fair share of it has been uh, negative throughout the entire campaign. So people have been paying attention. She hasn't gotten a lot of favorable press. When she gets mentioned, it turns people focus on her, her negative, her, uh, her kind of stiffness on the campaign trail. The problem is, of course, or, or the opportunity for her, depending on how you look at it, is that Donald Trump is just so extreme that even the, ne- the negative coverage of Clinton is overwhelmed by the kind of like, you know, the supernova negative coverage of Donald Trump. Could one of the other Republican candidates have beaten her? Um, I don't, I mean, we don't know, but what I come back. And and I guess the reason I'm saying that Blaine is just in the fact that they would have held her feet to the fire and made it a little bit more uncomfortable for her. I mean, it is possible, but the thing of it though, is that Clinton has run like, I think we talked about this last time is that she's run an incredibly disciplined campaign. And so she would have been formidable for anybody. Plus the, uh, the entire, even without Donald Trump, the Republican, uh, you know, primary field was incredibly weak. I mean, um, Marco Rubio was supposed to take it all, and Chris Christie knocked him out because, you know, in a debate where Rubio showed that he doesn't know what he's talking about and just kind of repeats lines. Um, Chris Christie is facing charges, uh, or, you know, he could, you know, potentially jail over the, over that bridge thing um, mm-hmm. in, New, in New York, New Jersey. Um, Ted Cruz, nobody likes Ted Cruz, and, uh, and Jeb Bush turns out not to know how to campaign. So, it was an incredibly, incredibly weak field. Hmm. Uh, so uh, do you honestly get the feeling that Hillary is moving away from Trump at this point? Is she adjusting her campaign at this point? Um, she seems to be making that, uh, that adjustment. I mean, she's quoted in the paper, I believe, this morning, saying that she's not even going to really bother responding to Donald Trump's camp, uh, accusations anymore. Um, and so now she's concentrating on trying to push the Democratic advantage in states that where, say, a month or two months and certainly 10 months ago would not have seen as being winnable for the Democrats. Can Trump pull this out at all? I don't think so. How much damage can he do? Uh, How much damage can Donald Trump do? Mm -hmm. To to whom? To the Republican Republican Party. Yeah, Republican Party. He can do a lot of... He seems to be already doing a lot of damage to the Republican Party. He seems to be depressing um, interest in turning out, potentially even early ballot turnout, um, now Republicans are, Trump is, is kind of emerging as, as almost kind of a joke among the not true believers. And this means, and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and others are doing their best to kind of, uh, yoke people like Paul Ryan who have tried to distance themselves from, from Trump without, dis, without disavowing them or removing their endorsement. And they're trying to yoke them to, to that. And so when Trump goes down, he's got a potential to take down a whole bunch of other Republicans as well. How do the, the Republicans redefine themselves after this? Um, I don't know. They can either... They, I mean, the thing of it to looking forward is that you still have the same dynamics that you had, uh, say, over the past eight years. If you have a, 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 Republic, uh, a Democratic president who a lot of people are saying that she gets in because it's a rigged system, regardless of whether or not it actually is rigged, she's a woman... And she's a Democrat, and she's a Clinton on top of that. And those are things that, that Republicans um, don't really have a, a, a lot of uh, ease dealing with. And so chances are you'll probably end up seeing a lot of the same obstructionism that you've seen over the past uh, past eight years. Hmm. Uh, which, of course, is not what the American people are looking for. Uh, where no. did this go wrong for Clinton? Was, th- was there one specific thing, or did it just start from the beginning that way and keep going? I mean, is there a point where he could have turned this around? Oh, you, you mean where things went wrong for Donald Trump? Sorry, Donald Trump, yes. Yes. Um, I, I mean, Donald Trump is 
who he is. There was an interesting article that I was uh, just reading this morning pointing out that a lot of the, the investigation into the Trump Foundation that's been going on that shows that he really hasn't given any money to, uh, to anybody that he's claimed that he's given money to and that, uh, you know, there seems to be some shady legal practices going on. That started back in during the primaries where he said he was going to give a whole bunch of money to veterans and it turned out that he had to be shamed into actually donating that money. So Donald Trump is who he is. He was always, he, he, um, he just, as he's shown in the debates, and as Alec Baldwin's had a lot of fun with, he just can't help who he is. And he's a very, very self-destructive person on the campaign trail. As we get to the end of this, I'm sure we won't stop analyzing it. How <laughs> did he get this far? Um, there's two things, I think. First of all, uh, like I said before, it's an incre- it was an incredibly weak, crowded field. He was able to play to that. The second thing, and this is when we talk about like the Republican Party, a lot of people voted for Donald Trump in the primary. So what he is saying out loud is what a lot of Republicans have been kind of like implying in their uh, in their uh, their election campaigns for decades. Um, you know the appeals, the direct appeals to race. Donald Trump basically triples down on, on white nationalism, but even someone who's held up as a kind of a, a great person in the party, like Ronald Reagan, did his very you know did his fair share of race baiting. George Bush Sr. also was, um, you know, those of us of a certain age can remember the Willie Horton ads, where he basically played on racial fears to get elected over, over Mike Dukakis. So basically, Trump was offering something that a lot of Republicans wanted to buy. Hmm. Are the Republicans to blame for the rise of Donald Trump? I mean, they're the most directly re- responsible because he's running under their banner. But, um, you know, he it's it's one of those things where he's ha- he's been a celebrity and in the public eye for three decades now, and particularly um, since the 2000s with the, with the Apprentice TV show. And so, with you know, if nobody knew who he was, then, you know, would he get this far? But at the end of the day, um, the Republicans uh, nominated him. Uh, people like Mitt Romney uh, sought his blessing when they were running for president. So it's, you know, there's probably a lot of blame to go around, but it, it's, it's Republicans are the most responsible. How will this change future leadership, future elections? Are we going to learn from this? Are the United, <laughs> is the United States, I guess the whole world could probably learn from this, but will, will, will there be a lesson learned here? Um, it depends on, it depends on a few things, or I would point to two things. First of all, it depends on the margin of, uh, of Clinton's victory. If, if, if she just completely creams Donald Trump, then there could be a potential lesson there about the limits of the appeal to white nationalism in the United States. But secondly, the, we'll know whether or not they'll, anything will be learned depending on how, how Republicans act or react rather to his, uh, to his defeat. What are the next two weeks going to be like? I mean, um, has this thing run out of gas yet? Have, have we have we seen the last home run or flub or whatever what you want to call it? I mean, what happens in the next couple of weeks? How does this all end? I, I mean, I don't know. I, I I don't know if you feel tired about talking about it, but I'm sure a lot of people a lot of people are yeah. exhausted about hearing about it and would like to move on to other things. And you know, going back to the third debate, what was I, I'm. In, you know, it's been a long campaign, but I'm glad that we had that because essentially it confirmed uh, stuff that we saw in the first and the second debate, uh, you know, about Trump's character, about Clinton's character, about where they stand on, on the issues uh, such as they are. And so I think that pretty much everything that needed to be said has been said. There could still be a surprise. Um, you know, Donald Trump has, uh, has managed to shock sensibilities again and again. Uh, we could find out something about Hillary Clinton. Um, you, you know, there could be a terrorist attack or something out of left field. Mm-hmm. But, but other than something, you know, something big like that, I think that things seem to be pretty set. Uh, if it goes as the way things are showing and, and Donald Trump loses, Hillary Clinton is victorious, will there be peace in the valley? Where Are you worried that, like, you know, there's going to be some segment of the population that rises up? Oh, oh so you mean, like, very, very seriously? Yeah. Um, um, yeah, because I mean, partisan differences will be with us till the till the end of time. But in, in terms of violence, uh, I mean, has he been irresponsible here? Is he inflaming oh, people for for no reason? Oh, he's been incredibly irresponsible. I mean, calling for he's called 
he's, he's implied that Hillary Clinton should be assassinated at least twice. Yeah. Um, you know, he basically called on people to disregard the results of an election and that is in, literally impossible to rig. Um, so, I mean, he's been incredibly irresponsible. So the question is, you know, do, do individuals listen to him? And there might be a bit of that. And the bigger question, though, is what does the party do with that? And if the party just says, you know, oh, that's just Donald being Donald, we're going to move on, then um, things will get back to kind of a dysfunctional normal. And I think that's, and I'm hopeful that that's the way that it's going to go. Are you surprised that once he got there, Blaine, that he didn't change his way? I mean, we all know that Donald's the Donald and whatever, but that was in the early stages of all this. Once he got the nomination and, you know, was a part of the big machine, are you surprised that he didn't fare better? No, because he's not really part of the big machine. I mean, his his campaign organization is his family. And I I mean, I I used to read Spy Magazine back in the 1980s where they coined the phrase short-fingered Bulgarian, where (laughs) where all that comes from. And he's still angry about that, which is insane. Um, So he is who he is. um, And he's he's in his 70s, and he's he's not going to change. I got to say that I was surprised how, how seemingly easy it was for Hillary Clinton to bait him. And just like when, he, when she threw out the words, you know, that he choked, yeah. and then he just reacted immediately. He's like, wow, um, I guess, if anything, I, 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 I was surprised he didn't even have that level of self-control to keep himself from going after something that was a blatant, blatant red flag. Are you surprised he hasn't brought in more of the family at this stage? That seemed to work well during the primaries. <laughs> it is, but... Uh, uh, I think they're all running in yeah. the other direction now. Could very well be, but I, I mean, they tried to help out, I guess, as, as best they could. But I don't think that they can really do much at this point. And certainly, the electorate seems to be, you know, kind of polarized between those who, uh, you know, who who like Trump and will therefore be disposed to liking his family, and those who, you know, who, you know, see the weird pictures that they put up about them, and they say that's kind of a weird-looking family. So I don't know, even if he did bring them up, bring them in, whether it would actually do any good. Uh, how does he position himself as he goes into the final two weeks? What is he going to do? Well, he's trying to suggest that the voting is rigged and he's still going to win. But uh, um, I, I have... I it have seems no to have run out of gas, hasn't it, Blaine? Do you find at this point, two weeks out, it's like we've seen it all. I don't think there's much more we're going to see. Yeah, and you can imagine, I mean, Donald Trump is a very unusual person and a very unusual candidate. But, you know, he's certainly not the first person to go into a campaign knowing that they're going to lose. And so that's got to be pretty tough on you regardless. And I'm, you know, personally, I'm not sure how one would find the stamina to know that, okay, I've got to keep putting my face out there and keep doing these campaigns, working 18 hours a day, knowing that, you know, even if it were close, that it's going to be a humiliation because essentially it's on the biggest stage in American politics. So that would be tough on, on anybody. Hmm. And again, it just like I, I, I you know, I watched the uh, I, I saw clips of uh, uh, of the dinner with the Catholic fundraiser that he did in New York just prior to the weekend. And it just it, I just really got the feeling that he's out of gas. There's just nothing else there. There's nothing else he can pull out of his hat that's that's going to shock us anymore. Yeah, that, it was a very interesting thing, because, I mean, he really he basically did his, his campaign speech or, or like his stump speech mm-hmm. and, and which is not what to do at something like that. Um, and, you know, Hillary Clinton, of course, you know, still going, you know, changing it up, doing her thing, the thing that you have to do as a politician at these things. And so, yeah, she's still going. He's completely, at the end of the day, it's interesting that um, when it comes to stamina, that Clinton has a heck of a lot more of it than Donald Trump. Hmm. Blaine Haggard has been with his associate professor in the Department of Political Science, Brock University, uh, two weeks out from the big federal election in the United States. Blaine, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.